Amen. You may be seated. I never thought I would say this, but now comes the easy part. (laughs) Uh, Go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew 2, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12 this morning. Um, My name is DJ. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm not the regular worship leader here, so please come back next time. Uh, But I'm going to be able to open the word up this morning and lead us in our study of the book of Matthew. We're right now in a series that we call Christmas for the Real World, our Advent series, as we count down the days until Christmas time. And that has us looking this morning at the visit of the wise men in chapter 2. If you didn't get a listening guide on your way in, uh, a little piece of paper that will have space for notes, has a copy of the text, will help you follow along. Alex will come down from the back and make sure that you get one of those this morning if you just slip your hand up. Uh, Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. So again, the theme of our Advent series has been Christmas in Christmas for the real world. Christmas is a time, it's a story that's very familiar to us. And if we're not careful, it can become very plastic, very sanitized, very storybook and fairy tale. And we can miss the very real truths that we get from a story where a very real God came and lived in a very real world to save us from our very real sins. And perhaps in no aspect of the Christmas story is this plastic nature quite as apparent as with the wise men. If I sit here this morning and I talk about the three wise men, your mind automatically runs to the Christmas story. doesn't matter if you sat in church every Sunday for your entire life, if you were taught the story in Sunday school growing up, or if you've never really been in church at all. Chances are, still, when I say three wise men, you think Christmas story. We're familiar with these guys in the little nativity scene, maybe in your grandma's house. There were little porcelain figures, or maybe you were in the nativity play growing up, and you got to put on the fake beard and stand there with your little golden box. But how much do you know about the three wise men? I mean, really, how much do you know? Like, were there really three? Are you sure? Where do you get that from? And, and they were at the manger, right? Right? Or, or were they? Where were they from, by the way? Where did they come from in the East? Is it just Orient land, like the song says? And heck, what are wise men to begin with? Like, who are these guys? Is this a class of, of people? Is it a job description where they just go around looking for newborn kings to be born in foreign lands so that they can worship them? What are these guys even doing there in the first place? Well, this morning, we're going to look at these wise men. We're going to look at their diligent search for the promised king of Israel and Israel's current king, who had a very different opinion of this child that was to be born in Bethlehem. And in doing so, we're going to learn a thing or two. We're going to learn a thing or two about the Christmas story that maybe you've never thought of before. We're also going to learn a thing or two about who Jesus is and how exactly he began and continues to turn the world upside down. So let's look together, Matthew chapter 2, and I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it's written by the prophet. 
and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. That's God's word for us this morning. Let's pray as we study it together. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who extends his salvation to the ends of the earth, we ask this morning that what we have not, you will give us. What we know not, you will teach us. What we are not, you will make us by your grace and the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So, verse 1 of chapter 2. We pick up right where Tom left off, if you were here last week, as he gave us the Christmas story proper, if you will. What we're used to hearing is, is the story of Jesus being born in the stable in Bethlehem. And so we pick up here in chapter 2 after that. Establishes the time frame of the story. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah, uh, that is where we pick up with this tale of the wise men. So the question is, how long after? Like five minutes after? Five years after? Well, sorry to ruin your favorite nativity scene, but it's long enough after that the wise men wouldn't actually be in the stable by the manger. Uh, when they find Jesus down in verse 11, notice it says, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. So this is long enough that Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus are in a house now. They're in a more permanent place of lodging, not the place where Jesus was born. And judging by orders that Herod is going to give in the text that we're going to study next week, it's likely we are less than two years from the birth of Jesus. So this is somewhere in that window of a few days to two years after Christ was born and the family is in Bethlehem. So that's all that we really know about the when. This takes place in the days of Herod the king who ruled Judea under the provincial authority of Rome from 37 BC to 4 BC. You remember last week Tom said Jesus was actually born more like 6 or 7 BC and not the year zero like we think. The initial scholars who put these dates together didn't quite get it all right. Their calendar was a little off. And so this takes place somewhere in that window. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So in the early days of Jesus' life, wise men from the east come seeking after him, come seeking the one, in verse 2, who has been born king of the Jews. They start asking around in Jerusalem, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We are looking for this child that's been born. So who exactly are these guys? Who are the wise men? We're going to talk a lot about them this morning. Let's set the table with who they are. Uh, well, they are wise men. The, the term that is translated from the Greek is magi, magi. Uh, so maybe you've heard that term thrown around sometimes at Christmas time, the, the magi from the east. Um, this word is a term that comes from Persian origin. 
And it was given to the class of astrologers, interpreters of dreams, sorcerers, and diviners in Babylon, in Media, and in Persia. In fact, there's a cool little tie-in for those of us who have been following our study we did in Daniel over the summer and fall. Uh, In the Septuagint, so the Septuagint is the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures that would have been used in the day of Jesus. So it's the Roman Empire, Greek is the common language of the people, and so the Old Testament scriptures were translated out of Hebrew and into Greek so that they could be used in the common language. They call that the Septuagint. Well, when they translate Daniel chapter 2, Magi is the term that they use to describe the wise men, the the diviners, the astrologers, the magicians. Remember, uh, Daniel and his friends are put into this class of people to serve the king, and the king has a dream, and he's bothered because none of his wise men can figure out what the dream means. And so that's where Daniel ends up stepping in and interpreting the dream. That's the term Magi that is used there. So I want you to imagine, as you think of these guys coming from the east, they belong to the class of people that Daniel and his friends inhabited in our study of Daniel. It was their job to understand, excuse me, and to figure things out by various arts and sciences that were known to those cultures in Babylon and in Persia. And so they show up in Jerusalem. And they're asking for the one who has been born king of the Jews. Why? Because they followed his star, right? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. So remember these guys, one of the the fields that they studied was astronomy and astrology, trying to ascertain meaning and significance to historical and future events by looking at the stars. And they tell us that they've seen something that's quite abnormal. They have seen a star when it rose from their homeland, that has signified to them that a significant child has been born, one who is born king of the Jews. And it's significant enough that it gets them on a journey of hundreds of miles from their homes to come and follow this star, to investigate, to find this child that has been born. So what we have a picture here is of outsiders, right? These guys are not Jews. They are not the heirs of the promise of Messiah, but they are outsiders who are on the inside track to the birth of Jesus. They've seen something that has grabbed their attention and they're following it. Now, this is one of those texts that when we get to the life to come and we can ask the extra questions, I am really excited to get to read the director's cut of this one to read the the story behind the story. Because I've got so many questions about these guys, right? So why exactly have they come? They saw the star in the east. They understand that something of significance had happened. But, but who exactly did they expect to find? How much did they know about this promised child? Did they, did they think they were going to see just a notable ruler? Or, or did they have a feeling this was something more? What did they know about Yahweh? Were they worshipers of Yahweh from a distant land? Did they, or were they familiar with the Old Testament scriptures? Were they familiar with the idea and the concept and the promise of Messiah, of this king who would come and save Israel, deliver his people? What did they learn from their journey when they meet Jesus? What, did they understand more of the significance of this after their encounter with a child, with Mary and Joseph? with the dream that they would have? And and what do they become? Where do they go from here? What's the story of their lives? Will we see them in the life to come? Did they get it? Did they understand the significance? I'm full of questions on this. And the bad news that I have for you is that none of them are answered by this text. We don't get answers to any of those questions. 
Matthew doesn't tell us. He's not interested in giving us the full and unabridged story of the wise men. That's going to be in the spinoff movie that maybe we'll get to see the other side of eternity. But don't be discouraged. Because that fact simply means that the answers to those questions is not the main point of the story. And so I want to ask you this morning, and I want us to focus in together on the question, why does Matthew include this in his account of Jesus' birth? What's the significance of this? We know so little about these guys. We know so little about what drove them, what they knew of this child who was to be born. So why are they here? Why does Matthew include the account? I'm going to suggest to you this morning that he includes the account because these men are just about the last people on earth that we would expect to grab the significance of Jesus' birth. And yet, here they are. Not just, you know, walking in, oh, we took the wrong road from Judea and we ended up in Bethlehem. No, they've been diligently seeking out this child. They come to Jerusalem. They ask questions. They've journeyed hundreds of miles from their home. And they're seeking this child who has been born, of whom they know maybe a little, maybe a lot, we don't know. But the point here is that it is the spiritual outsiders, pagan Persians from a faraway land, who find themselves on the inside track here to knowing God. And this is a reality that God hinted at in the Old Testament, in the promises about Messiah. In Isaiah 49, one of the chapters that points to the servant of the Lord who would save his people from their sins, these messianic prophecies, God says in Isaiah 49, 6, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation shall reach to the ends of the earth. I love that verse. Do you catch the significance of that? Look, it is too small a thing to simply make you the savior to the people of Israel. Like, that's small potatoes. I can do that anytime. I am going to make you a light to the nations that my salvation will extend to the ends of the earth. That promise is given 700 years before Christ was born. And now here, right away, at Jesus' birth, Here are the first fruits of the Gentiles showing up on the front door. These guys crossing desert, crossing from distant lands, and seeking out the Christ child. The presence of these wise men is a reminder that Christ is a light to the nations. And through him, God's salvation is extended to the ends of the earth. And that is good news and important news to us today, (coughs) excuse me, in a way that we don't often think about. Because we are the outsiders, right? You, know, you may have a long spiritual heritage in your family, and we have been blessed with a nation and a people that has a strong spiritual heritage where the gospel has been proclaimed freely for centuries. But we are still spiritual outsiders. We are still those who have been grafted into the people of God as he revealed his promises to the Jews throughout the Old Testament. This promise of salvation to the nations is extended to everybody. It's extended to Chinese Christians this morning who are suffering, who are under arrest, who are being beaten, who are having their possessions stripped away for claiming Christ. And it's good news for them. His salvation is extended to isolated tribes who kill the very missionaries who give everything to reach them with the good news of this gospel. The gospel is for them. The birth of Christ is for them. And his salvation extends to good old, average, everyday, middle-class, suburban American Christians gathered right here. 
It's for us. That's why the wise men are here, because we weren't there. You might think you've got a great spiritual heritage, but if you go back far enough, you're going to find somebody in your past who was a pagan worshiping who knows what, who knows where. Unless you've got some Jewish ancestry that I don't know about, you're not part of the original people that would have been there in Jerusalem. You were grafted in. And we're tempted to think that's not the case, right? We're tempted to think that, that Christmas, that Christianity is for the, the upright, the quasi-religious, the respectable, the folk that aren't too far off from God as we imagine it. And this text tells us this morning that Christmas, that Christ, that Christianity is for the outsider. It's for the one who is far from God and knows it. Jesus is going to say later on in his ministry, I haven't come for the healthy. The healthy don't need a doctor. The sick do. That's who my mission is for. That's who my message is for. And so if you're tempted to think that way, if you're tempted to hold the gospel close, to give it to the people who are like you, who you think are not far off, remember, you are in Christ because someone, somewhere, decided that the gospel was for you too or for your parents, or for your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents. Somewhere along the way, someone decided the gospel was for you, for your family as an outsider, and they extended it. And someone believed, and such began a legacy of faithfulness. These outsiders came because they were following a star. Don't miss this, that Christ, they, they come to the Christ child. Why? How do they know that he has been born? Well, God reveals to them that something has taken place. And how does he reveal it to them? Through a star. These guys, their job, their livelihood was studying the stars for signs. And so God reveals himself to them and he speaks their language. We don't know how much of the significance they grasp, but they understood when they saw this star rise that something had happened. And God today is still in the business of hanging stars in the sky to get the attention of people who are far from him. Maybe that star is your friendship in somebody's life. Maybe it's a personal tragedy that somebody goes through. God speaks our language. He reaches out to those who are far from him. He shows himself and he invites us to come near and to worship his son, to gather around the Christ child. That's what he does in this story. And the lesson for us from the presence of the wise men is that's what he still doing today, that outsiders are on the inside track when it comes to the significance of Christ's birth. And as we go into verse 3, as if to reinforce that point, not only are the ones who should be outsiders on the inside track, but the ones who should be insiders are left out in the cold entirely. Right? So these Persian visitors cause quite a stir. They start asking around in Jerusalem for the one born the king of the Jews. When Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. So these guys, they don't get right to Jesus. They come to Jerusalem, because after all, if you're going to be born king of the Jews, that's probably where you're going to be, right? The capital city, the place of political power and influence and intrigue. And so they follow the star, they come to Jerusalem, and they start asking around, hey, where's the Christ child? Where's this one who has been born king of the Jews? We've shown up to worship him. And the people said, huh? I don't know, and it gets people talking, and there's murmurs and rumors, and finally it gets to Herod. It gets to the king, and he decides that this is going to warrant some investigation. So, question, who is Herod? Who is this guy? Well, Herod is half Jewish and half Idumean, 
The Edomians were the descendants of Esau, people called the Edomites in the Old Testament. So Herod is a half-Jew, half-Edomite ruler who has been put in place by the Roman Senate. So he's from a very politically well-connected family. Uh, the Herodians were influential with the Romans, and so in, a, or in B.C. 37, the Roman Senate installed Herod as the provincial king over Judea. Uh, and he was a Jew, he was ostensibly a practicing Jew, but he and his family were very well known for their decadent and sensual lifestyle. And because of that, they were not really well liked by the people. Most of your devout, God-fearing Jews knew that this guy might have played the game on the outside, but he really did not care about God, did not care about his law, did not care about his worship. So Herod's not the most popular guy in the world, uh, and he's not particularly pious. And that lack of piety shows itself in how he responds to the news, right? He hears that there's these guys asking about the one who was born king of the Jews, this Savior, this Christ who is to be born. And he should, as a, if he were a devoted follower of God, he should have rejoiced, right? This is the moment prophesied by Isaiah, prophesied for hundreds and hundreds of years, and it's here. But instead, he's troubled. Well, that's an odd response. That's not the way we would think it would go from the political leader of God's people. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And that word troubled is it's really a little stronger than what we translate it in the ESV. This word can also be translated as disturbed, agitated, stirred up. Herod ain't sleeping too good at night when he hears this news. It bothers him. And as he's bothered, all Jerusalem is bothered with him. Now, we don't know if that means the whole city is in an uproar, uh, or if this is just talking about the, the influencers, the ruling class. You know, think about if I were to say that something happened in Washington, D.C. this week, and all D.C. was talking about it. Well, I don't mean necessarily that Joe down on the corner store is talking about it, but we, when we say D.C., we know we're talking about the power center of our country, and so there's senators and there's presidents who are talking about it. Could be the same thing here. But either way, those who are in the know in Jerusalem are riled up by this news because Herod is agitated. Herod is disturbed. Now, why would Herod react in this way? Why would Herod be troubled like this? Well, he'd be troubled because he saw this newborn king as a threat. That's odd. Why, why see a little baby to be born? The promised Messiah of God's people. Why would Herod see him as a threat? Well, Herod, you see, had a paranoid streak. We look through the history books, read the historian, Jewish historian Josephus, we find that Herod had more than one son, wife, and friend put to death because he was afraid that they were angling for his throne. He always saw somebody over his shoulder coming to take his power, and he was ruthless in taking measures to ensure that that did not happen. In fact, Caesar Augustus, who was the ruler of the Roman world at this time, was fond of saying that he would rather be Herod's pig than his son. And that's a pun because those words in Greek sound very much alike. You know, pig's not really well thought of by the Jewish people, but, Herod, or, but uh, Caesar would say, I've got a better shot of survival if I'm Herod's pig than I do if I'm Herod's son. So this is a guy who didn't really have much loyalty to the people around him. He was concerned about his own power, his own influence, and whatever he had to do to preserve that, he was willing to do. And so whereas these wise men, these foreigners, these outsiders see a child, a king, a promise to be worshipped, Herod sees a threat to be eliminated. And so what does he do? He's got to figure out, how do I find this kid? 
And again, we, we, like we said, he's not particularly pious. He doesn't know the scriptures, but he knows guys who do know the scriptures. So he calls together the religious leaders in verse 4 to ask them where the Messiah is to be born. Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they tell him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by Micah the prophet. And we have this quotation here from Matthew, from Micah, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So he calls together the scribes, the chief priests, the religious leaders, and they say the Christ is to be born in Bethlehem. If the kid has really been born, that's where it's going to be. And they quote Micah 5 too. Now, one quick side note. Uh, if you go and compare this quotation that Matthew gives with Micah 5 2 in your Bible, you're going to notice some differences. Now, don't be all stirred up by that. What, what's going on? Did Matthew get the verse wrong? Did he quote the wrong thing? Is he editorializing? Well, he doesn't get this wrong. See, Matthew is telling a story, he is showcasing the birth of Christ, what Christ has come to do. And so Matthew's not just telling us a straight story. Matthew's doing some preaching as he's telling. He's not just quoting the text, he's explaining it. So the big change that he makes is if you look at Micah 5.2, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, those next few words are by no means, that's not there in the original Old Testament scripture. It just reads, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, least among the rulers of Judah. And so we might say, well, Matthew inserts four words, that completely changed the meaning of the text, to which I would say, exactly. That's the whole point of the text, right? The Christ is to be born in this little podunk town of Bethlehem. And so when the promise is made, you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, least among the rulers of Judah, the whole point that is packed in there in Micah 5 is that it looks like you're least of all. It looks like you're a little podunk town, but by no means, Bethlehem, you are the place from you shall come a ruler, one who will shepherd the people of Israel. So Matthew is emphasizing this turnabout, this surprise, that it's not from the place that we would expect where Christ is to be born. So Matthew is preaching and he's explaining the, the profoundness, the meaning that is inherent in that Old Testament text. So if somebody says there's contradictions in the Bible, when Matthew quotes Micah 5.2, it doesn't match Micah 5.2. So how can you say the Holy Spirit inspired both? You can say, because Matthew's not just trying to straight quote Micah 5.2, he's making a point and he's explaining its significance. All right, sidebox over, off the rabbit trail, and let's get back down the road. But note here, the religious leaders, they offer this info. They say, Christ's child is to be born in Bethlehem. Now you would think, and we know Herod's a little squirrely, and he's off the reservation, but these are the chief priests. These are the scribes. These are the teachers of the law of Moses, and they understand Christ's child is to be born in Bethlehem. And there's these murmurings going around Jerusalem that a Christ child has been born. What would you think they would do? Go and check it out? But instead, we find no evidence that they do so. The news of the, of the Magi had spread. All Jerusalem is in an uproar. These guys know Christ's child is going to be born in Bethlehem, but they're in no hurry to believe it. They're apathetic to the news. This group of foreigners is gone hundreds of miles and is continuing onward to Jerusalem to find this child to worship him. And the chief priests, the scribes, the leaders of God's people go, meh. What has happened to these guys? 
Have they become so cold by the passage of time that they don't really expect Isaiah's prophecy to be fulfilled in their lifetime? It's, it's just a story. It's just a fairy tale. This isn't Christmas for the real world to these guys. They're apathetic to the news. They're in no hurry to believe it. Herod believes it. Herod is terrified by it as it threatens to unseat his power. And so Jesus continues to be greeted by many an insider today. There are folks sitting in churches all over the country who have a collective shrug when they hear the Christmas story told again and again. And again, it's just a story. It looks real nice on the mantle place. It makes for some nice songs and nice food and good times with family. But is this really significant? Does it really mean anything? Does it really demand anything from me? Is that how you're tempted to respond to Christmas? Like these chief priests? Like these scribes? You know the story inside and out, but it hasn't changed you. It hasn't made a difference in your heart. Or maybe you're more like Herod and you think, I'm not at all like Herod. I wouldn't want to kill Jesus. That's awful and horrible. But there are plenty of people, plenty of people who sit in churches, who hear the commands of Christ, who hear his claim on their life, who hear him and see him pointing out sin and calling for repentance. And they say, this is a threat to me being able to live my life the way I want to live my life. I've got no time for this. And so they explain Jesus away. Or maybe that they just slide in and fit in and look good on the outside, but on the inside, they have no time and no patience for a Christ who commands them to anything. They seek to eliminate him through repetition and coldness. They may seek to eliminate him through outright denial, through saying this story is meaningless, it's worthless, there is no God, and there's no meaning in the universe. That means I get to run my own show. We've got Herods all over the place. And we've got chief priests and scribes all over the place. We sing joy to the world, the Lord has come, and people shrug. We sing glory to the newborn king, and they can't stand the thought of an authority that they cannot escape. And for apathy or for proud fear, they miss the Savior. Are you in one of those camps this morning? Are you tempted to apathy? Are you tempted to hold back, to resist the rule of Christ in your heart and in your life? Are you at risk of being an insider left out in the cold while the foreigners from distant lands come gathering around the newborn king? Well, we see them arrive here in verse 7, and we see our final picture of unexpected worshipers around an unexpected king. So Herod gets the scoop from the wise men on, the, on when the star appears, a piece of information he's seeking out with murderous intent. We're going to find out next week exactly to what great brutal lengths this guy is willing to go to preserve his own rule. But he's not going to say that to the wise men. To them, he says, hey, go and search diligently for the child, and when you're done, come back and tell me so I can come and worship him too. So Herod intends to come and worship Jesus. Uh, He's not really going to worship in the way that we would think of worship, but to each his own, I suppose. Uh, And so he sends them on to Jerusalem. He sends them on, asking them to report back when they find his location so he can show up and eliminate this threat. Now, I want you to think right now, from what we've seen so far, I want you to stop and think about how absolutely bizarre this scene is. Right? You're so used to the Christmas story that it just washes on over and it's all hot cocoa and porcelain figures. 
Think about how crazy this is. Right now, we have the God of the universe as a child in Bethlehem. The teachers of the law of Moses don't care. The king of God's people wants to kill him. And the worshipers diligently searching him out are a bunch of pagan Persian astrologers. Exactly how you drew it up, right? This is madness. Matthew is constructing this tale to make the point. The people who you thought would be there aren't there. And the people that you didn't think had a chance, they're showing up. And what are we going to see replicate itself over and over throughout Jesus' ministry, right? He's going to tell parables of people invited to a wedding feast and nobody shows up. And so he says, go out in the streets and get the bums and invite them into the wedding feast. Like this story replicates itself over and over and over. Jesus doesn't care whether you've got a spiritual heritage. He doesn't care whether you're nice and upstanding with a clean pressed shirt. He cares to call people from the ends of the earth that no one would expect to himself so that God alone gets glory. That's the point of the wise men showing up in the Christmas story. The star reappears. It rests over the house where Mary, Joseph, and Jesus are living, and the Magi rejoice. They go on their way, verse 9. The star that they had seen when it rose came to rest over the place when the child was, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They understood that that someone is showing us what we are seeking. Our journey is about complete. We have found this child, and they come in. And they worship him. And they give him gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. A lot of people have spent a lot of ink trying to figure out what is the significance of the gifts and what does each one represent? Is it something different? Um, Maybe there's some value there. You know, some have suggested frankincense and myrrh. These are embalming spices. Is this a hint forward to the death of Christ? Maybe it is. Um, but we don't have that explicitly spelled out for us. What, what we do need to understand about these things is these are the things you would give a king. These are precious treasures. These are things fit for royalty. When these guys show up, they are seeking one who is of royal significance, the one who has been born king of the Jews. So they understand this king, this child is worthy of costly treasures and worthy of worship. They gather around and they worship him. This is remarkable, and I would love to know what is going through Mary and Joseph's mind when these guys show up. Like, you know, they're going about their business. Jesus is playing with a ball in the floor, and they are making dinner, and somebody rings the doorbell, and they go and open up. (laughs) It's a bunch of guys from Persia, and they say they're here to find the newborn king, and they brought presents. Like, just another Wednesday night at the Jesus household. I would love to know what's going through their mind. Are they grasping now the significance? Because we know all along, right? Mary and Joseph, they understand something of the significance of what's happened with this child, but did did they really understand the full breadth of it? How could they at the time? But the text doesn't tell us what Mary and Joseph are thinking any more than it tells us what the Magi are thinking. Because it's not the point. Why is this text here? It's here to scream out that God sent his son into the world in a way that nobody expected in order to draw people who nobody expected toward himself. Why? Because his love and his salvation are not contained by borders. That was a shocking statement to the Jews of this day. They thought, we're the in crowd. We're the people that God loves. We're his chosen nation plucked from the whole earth, made to be a people for his own possession. 
And that's true. But it's not the whole truth. The whole truth was sitting right there in front of them all along. Psalm 22, verses 27 and 28. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you because kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over Jerusalem. No, he rules over the nations. They're all his, all the people of the earth. Zechariah 9, 9 through 10, this promise of Messiah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Spoiler alert, that's going to come into play in a few weeks, months probably. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Right there in all their promises, in all their scriptures, God is saying, this is for you, Jerusalem, but not just you. I've got bigger things in mind. My salvation will go to the ends of the earth. Their chief priests missed it. Their scribes missed it. Their king didn't see it because he had other plans, other cares, other concerns. And so God calls a bunch of Persian guys to cross hundreds of miles of desert and bow down before the king of the universe in his nursery. This is your God. This is the Christmas story. And this is the message for us today. Gentile outsiders in Crestwood, Kentucky, come and worship Jesus. The people that you know that you're going to see at work tomorrow, that you're going to see when you take out the trash on Tuesday, the people who you think they would be interested in church in a million years. Why would I share the gospel with them? Because Persian pagan astrologers wouldn't be interested in Christ in a thousand years. And they're the first ones God calls to show up. Why would we think any less than the thoughts that God has? Share the gospel with everybody, with the near, with the far. Rejoice that God gave the gospel to you, to your family, that while we were still sinners, far away, cut off, Christ died for us. Christmas is about unlikely worshipers gathered around an unlikely king. What a God. What a Savior we have. This is reality. This is the real world. This doesn't fit on your mantle place. But it's designed to call your heart heavenward and rejoice and give glory to Christ. And so the Magi, they come, they worship, they offer gifts, and then they have a dream, a warning from God, not to return to Herod, but to go to their own country by another way. God sends them a dream. He reroutes their GPS, says, you know what, you're going to take the long way home. God is preserving Christ. Through these guys, not only do these pagan Persian astrologers show up and they're the first ones that come and worship at the feet of Jesus, they get to save his life. God makes them the instrument of salvation. And so, in the multi-part, multifaceted, crazy big plan of God, we are here, recipients of his salvation, in part because God used these guys to preserve his son, to preserve the life of the young Jesus. We see that. 
we should wonder. We should be humbled by the majesty of who he is, by his great plan, that even this little sentence that's seemingly insignificant, where we don't know the backstory, and it's packed away in chapter two, and we read right past it, and we move on, it screams out beautiful truth to us. The gospel is for you. The gospel is for me. The gospel is for the nations. And so, what is your reaction to Jesus this Christmas? We've seen a few different responses. Which category do you fit in? Are you worshiping him, bringing your gifts and willing to go to great lengths to do so? If you've got to cross hundreds of miles, you'll cross hundreds of miles. If the best you have is gold, frankincense, and myrrh, that's what you're laying at his feet. You're worshiping, you're glorying, and you're sharing that good news with those who are around you. Or are you apathetic, like the chief priests and the scribes? Seemingly religious on the outside, but lacking any real genuine faith. You've got a heart that is cold and hard. And so when you hear the songs, when you hear the good news proclaimed, you go, eh, it's just a story. It's just words on a page, thoughts in your head. Or are you threatened like Herod? Determined to do whatever it takes to preserve your own rule and reign over your own life. No matter who you got to kill, no matter what truths you got to push out of your mind, whatever falsehoods you have to embrace, I'm living the way I want to live and ain't nobody going to tell me otherwise. Or are you some combination of the three? I mean, we're all tempted in one direction or the other, I would, I would imagine. But this Christmas, what is your reaction to Christ? What is your reaction to the news of the child who has been born in Bethlehem, king of the Jews? If you're a Christian, do you believe in and live in light of a gospel that invites in the outsider? Or do you assume, because you're so comfortable with this gospel, you're so comfortable in your religion, that you really don't have to step outside your comfort zone? God wouldn't ask you to do that. Just do what's easy. Just take the simple step. Do you have a faith that is as big as what we see in this text? Do you have a faith, an umbrella, that covers Persian pagan astrologers and invites them under the throne? Or are you content to just have you and your hot cocoa and your Christmas music and ride along? Simple story. You've heard it a million times. Wise men of an indeterminate number gathered around the throne of Christ. But it bears a big truth. It bears something for us to think about and ask ourselves as we understand Matthew's point of how big the gospel is. Do I believe in that same gospel? Am I practically living in the light of that same gospel? And so as we go from here this morning, I would invite you to think on that to ask yourself those questions. And as you celebrate over these next couple of weeks, the traditions and the trappings of the season, see them different. See the truth that lies underneath that's bigger than you can imagine, that never gets old, that never gets stale, and worship the God who would send his salvation to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. God of grace, Thank you 
that your invitation just doesn't go out to the close, to the respectable, to the almost righteous, but that while we were still sinners, you sent your son into a world to die for the lost and the broken and the alone. May we not lose sight of that this season. May we not forget your goodness, your great love, your abounding love, steadfast from generation to generation. May we not react like the scribes, like the chief priests. May you root out and kill apathy in us. Help us to glory in the newborn king who became the Christ, who died for our sins and was risen from the dead and reigns forevermore. Father, help us to recapture the wonder that is due your name and guard us against being like Herod, against holding on to our little kingdom, raising walls against your advancing glory, against your advancing gospel. Remind us that whoever loses his life will find it. Whoever tries to find his life will lose it. Father, make us like these wise men who follow you, who bring our gifts, who bring ourselves, who, who traverse nations and difficulties in order to worship the Christ. And as we meditate on these things, may it change the way we see those around us. May it change the way we speak to those around us. And may you unite us into a people who grasps a gospel that is big, that we might see your salvation reach to the ends of the earth. We pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.